Welcome to Lumina, a podcast from Afters, the Australian Film, Television and Radio School. Now let's see if we can't figure out what you are, my little friend. Like a lot of people on this planet, we saw Star Wars in 1977. General Kenobi, years ago you served my father in the Clone Wars. Now he begs you to help him in his struggle against the Empire. I regret that I am unable to present my father's request to you in person. Uh, and Princess Leia gets the credit for being one of the first holographic people. You know, I joked that uh, she had a very important message to save the galaxy. And she could have had whatever instrument, medium she wanted. Star Wars. And she didn't use a fax. She didn't send a message by SMS or write a personal letter. She sent her holographic form to save the galaxy. This is our most desperate hour. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. I've always thought of human holograms as a pretty dated futuristic concept, something we had outgrown, like hoverboards or robots that say exterminate. The world that imagined a future full of holograms really peaked in the 70s and 80s. But hologram-esque technology is happening already. It's just not being used for quick messages the way Princess Leia intended. Snapchat can serve that purpose. It's coming out of volumetric video capture. So I'm Scott O'Brien, uh, CEO founder of Humense, uh, which is a, a new word I made up called, uh, um, well, it's immensely human. And uh, we're located in St. Leonard's. Uh, we joke, the saint of virtual reality. And uh, we're, we're actually kind of paying homage to some of the original locations of animation and uh, digital media in, in Sydney before they took off to Surrey Hills. And now, you know, there's a, a dozen that have come back this way. And uh, it's an interesting sort of phenomenon, the geo clusters of uh, tech companies. You're right, this place used to be the hub, didn't it? It was Gore Hill, the ABC, yeah. uh, and then there was all the graphic design and design companies. They were all in this space. So you're bringing it back, humans. Describe what it is that you actually do. So principally, we're doing volumetric video. So uh, multiple camera feeds, 2D camera feeds, along with machine learning to be able to capture, process, distribute and display a human being as we see each other in the real world, not a 2D cardboard cutout. And this is vital for the future of augmented and virtual reality. So it's been a gaping hole in a lot of augmented and virtual reality experiences and, and a large reason why these technologies have not become mainstream as quick as they could have. What do you mean a, a gaping hole? What, is, what have been some of the problems with how we have been representing the human in this space? So for years and years in uh, animation, film and robotics, uh, when we've tried to represent the human form artificially, it's been very complicated, very expensive dollar-wise and very expensive data-wise. Uh, put that in context, uh, Benjamin Button, done over a decade ago, 150 people, two years, tens of millions of dollars just to do the NECA. Tupac at Coachella, Michael Jackson at Billboard, these performing holographic, so-called holographic uh, 3D versions life-size took 40 to 50 people six months plus. But what we're working on now is a way to capture and display the human form in a way that's extremely accessible, uh, in a way that is extremely believable to the brain. It's not just TV-worthy or broadcast-worthy or cinema-worthy. It needs to be neuropsychologically worthy. What does that actually mean? 
the brain needs to believe you're actually with somebody. And, you know, some uh, evidence of that will be people obeying social contracts. It's so funny when I put people into VR and I introduce them to a volumetric video person that's there, they'll stand at the correct social contract distance away from that person. And, uh, Even and though they could walk on top of them and chat. All through them. them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm Fenella Kernebone and this is Lumina. In the last episode, we talked about immersive technologies and whether they increase connection to story. We found that immersion doesn't guarantee a deeper connection to story, but paired with the right concept, it can lead to maximum engagement. In this second part of our immersion episode, we pick up where we left off. This time we're looking at whether immersive technologies increase our connection to other humans. Can our immersion become so realistic we foster a new level of human empathy enabled by new storytelling technology? Scott O'Brien started his career far away from volumetric capture technology. At uni, he studied psychology. I freaked out my mother by uh, going to watch Silence of the Lambs and coming back saying I want to be a criminal psychologist. (laughs) It's better than saying I want to be uh, Hannibal Lecter. Yes, thanks Jodie for that, (laughs) for that great performance. After moving around a lot and changing careers a couple of times, Scott found himself interested in this new volumetric technology. When perfected, it has the power to bring people together, regardless of their location, in a hyper-realistic way. Having been brought up in the country, I understood the sense of isolation uh, that people have, the the sense of, "Ah, that's just not possible, that's far away. Uh, Well, it's not with 7.5 billion people on the planet going towards eight or nine, and there's a lot of misunderstandings between all these people, yet we're all the same. For you, it was, I mean, let's say just back to the Princess Leia moment, watching her, you you feel an affinity to her, you relate to her because you can see her, feel her presence in 3D. Absolutely. Scott realised that this new way of using tech crossed over with his original passion, psychology. It's a whole new level of understanding of psychology and how we relate to each other and this sort of taps into one of the larger goals uh, that we have with using this technology and and that is help more people who otherwise wouldn't share personal space and time sort of get together and because it's a holographic version of another person it reduces apprehensions so we can overcome a lot of phobia a lot of social constructs which are resulting in a lot of negative outcomes in this world. So as much as it's about heavy tech, heavy math, it's definitely heavy psychology and and sociology. Tell me what this actually looks like. We're looking in a VR environment here. Give me a sense of what we're looking at and feeling when we're in that space, when you're talking about this holographic display. Well, I must point out that we are looking to capture and display to every version of reality. Uh, not just virtual. That said, everything is virtual reality, uh, the simulation, uh, and everything is augmented reality. So uh, when the manufacturers, Oculus and HTC and Samsung Gear and Google Cardboard, they ask us to put something on our face and we go into this other visual world, we've still got you know, our other four main modalities uh, that are experiencing the real world. Your body is still experiencing the real world. So I, I see virtual reality headsets as actually augmenting when we consider human-centered design, if we're considering the holistic human experience, everything is augmented reality that way. So what are we experiencing when we put these 
augmented or as the manufacturers may call it, virtual reality headsets on. It can be so many different things. The initial steps a lot of people have taken is in an experience uh, what's technically defined as three degrees of freedom. So you'll be in a swivel chair and uh, often in a 360 video and you'll be sort of so-called transported to another environment. And, and with that, you, you'll get your head inside the canvas of the inside of a beach ball, for example, and it's quite good. And there's been some profound experiences like clouds over Sidra, uh, taking people to the um, Camp Satari, the largest refugee camp in the world. Uh, and that helped elicit extra millions and millions of dollars um, at a World Economic Forum uh, to assist in, in, in aid. The VR film Clouds Over Sidra came out in 2015 and it followed a 12-year-old girl, Sidra, who lived in the camp in Jordan with 84,000 other vulnerable refugees. For many people who experienced the film, it was the closest they'd ever come to understanding the day-to-day suffering in the camp. By using the immersive technology, they felt a direct connection with the people in the story. They were right there, in Sidra's world, surrounded by her reality. Similarly, when I spoke to Chris Panzetta in our previous episode, he remembered an immersive experience that really stuck with him. His agency, S1T2, was partnering with Alzheimer's Australia on a project, and the collaboration was particularly important to Chris because that was what his grandmother was living with at the time. Um, We were doing Vivid in 2015 with Alzheimer's Australia. We went to visit them down in Melbourne, we walked in and she's like, do you want to try out our immersion room? And I was like, how the hell do you guys have an immersion room? Anyway, I walked into this room. It was a kind of a wall display. And they said, OK, all you have to do is stand there and then get to the toilet. Chris put on a headset. And so essentially you're looking down this corridor. And then as you try and walk down the corridor, you start to notice that the wallpaper changes a little bit and the sound is banging through your ears. You get to the end of the corridor and there's three doors and each door looks exactly the same. So you don't really know which one to go in. You open one, it's kind of blurry and then it will change. For me, I was totally immersed in that story, but it was also super impactful because I realized for the first time what my grandmother was going through. And that is the power of these technologies. I always assumed that, oh, it's fine for them because they don't know what's going on. It's worse for the family. But you realize how scary and secure it is. That story was designed for carers because they had a lack of empathy for patients wetting themselves. They created that experience to feel what it's like. So I was totally kind of engrossed in that and totally impacted, which was kind of the best use case for these type of things. Instead of watching or hearing a story about dementia, when he put on that headset, Chris was living it. We're already part of a future where immersive technologies can forge human connections. Here's Scott O'Brien again. I love that you said the word living because a lot of people, you know, in the film world talk about storytelling. But story living is this fascinating opportunity with different dynamics, different respect for the audience and a different dynamic for the, for the directors and producers, of course. Uh, the talent find it exciting. We're early in this transition phase. Scott talks about this new way of experiencing stories like it's magic, you know, an exciting alchemy of tech and emotions. But he admits that there are restrictions at the moment, and he thinks that they can limit our ability to empathise. You can't walk around, you're stuck where the camera was. So what we're conscious of is the people's ability to not only look around and tilt and pivot their head, but uh, walk around in the scene. And as you look at a scene that's been either uh, captured with camera 
or created through a computer, you can have a relationship with different people and assets in the scene and each asset and, and person in the scene should ideally have their own physics, lighting and psychology. It's enabled through game engines, Unity and Unreal. And these game engines have a lot of pre-baked physics, pre-baked lighting, uh, enabling us to, in, in the virtual and augmented reality world, to quickly create experiences that are pure magic. Game engines, by the way, are software development environments, and they allow game designers to code and plan out a game without starting completely from scratch. In a way, this whole exercise, the last decade and forevermore, is a sort of a Venn diagram overlap of magic, technology and psychology. Scott and people like him are striving for an authenticity of experience where we are face-to-face, virtually, with other people. But we're not quite there yet. We're not all speaking to our version of Princess Leia, compelled to help because she appealed to us as though she was in bodily form, holographic style. For now, we interact through screens, bending to their will. Whilst we're holding a a man-made object in our hands, what's going on in our heads is a dopamine endorphin cocktail. What is missing is oxytocin, the wine and candle drug, principally responsible for trust, loyalty, persuasion, bonding. How that's enabled is um, more eye contact, more hugs and other special things uh, for another podcast. (laughs) And you can't deliver that through a little glowing rectangle. What we have with the glowing display, the rectangle display, otherwise known as our phones, it is technology. We've built technology for ourselves to connect in a way that has, as you're suggesting, is making us less likely to connect, right? But you're also suggesting that we bring in more technology Mm. and that will help us to connect. So in, in this case, more technology equals more humanity. Yeah, great. Well, that, that was great because it also helps answer a, a previous question. I demonstrate this in like a storytelling clock. So at midnight, we start with two dudes around a campfire. And they, when I say dudes, let, let me also say that's men and women and uh, so on. They effectively told this story in, in an intimate way. And then one person said to the other, I've got an idea. I've got a place. You can tell this to a hundred other people and you'll make something out of it. Same story, just deliver it to more theatre. But as they did theatre, more people were further and further back and that level of whites in the eye contact was kind of cut off. So then as we delivered cinema, that story got squashed flat and TV squashed flat again and even more remote. So in this storytelling clock, the screens are getting smaller content's getting more personalised and it's all getting closer to our eyes. And now, coming closer back to midnight to the campfire, the screen's actually going to start to sit on our eyes. But the real estate of the screen is inverted. And now the screen is actually the world. We are now sort of looking at the world with a different lens. And I think a classic example is Pokemon. We had people who are normally socially isolated come out and talk with each other, make friends, solve problems, play with other people. So even though Pokemon was a super, super primitive version of augmented reality, it was great proof of of what is ahead for us. 
In a world where Pikachus are around every corner, our digital reality makes it possible now to share time and space with people all around the world. We will be able to learn, to listen, to collaborate absolutely in ways that are realistic, something that is close to our human-to-human experience. I think the sweet spot, though, is working out our ability to opt in and opt out when we want to and to be able to block out that stuff that we don't need to see, we don't want to see, because we need to be in control of our own stories and of these immersive technologies for them to work for us, you know, to get some of that empathy-weaving magic that Scott is so into for ourselves. I want that. You have been listening to Lumina, a podcast from Afters, Australia's national screen and broadcast school, dedicated to finding, developing and supporting Australian storytelling talent. Lumina is produced for Afters by Audiocraft with Selena Shannon and Jess O'Callaghan. Our sound engineer is Ryan Pemberton and our executive producer is Kate Montague. My name is Fenella Kernabone and if you'd like to hear more of these episodes, do subscribe in your favourite podcast app. You have been listening to Lumina, a podcast from Afters. Mm.